African Dialogue, looking at different events in depth, discussing a variety of issues. What we see here is a clear violation of one, the right to privacy of Tiwonge and uh, Stephen. The position of Greenpeace is that it's been a disappointing meeting. And welcome to yet another interactive installment of African Dialogue. You tuned in to Channel Africa, your gateway to Africa, bringing you news from an African perspective. I'm your host, Ayanda Mkwanazi, and we're currently on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. A Human Rights Watch 2018 report on Egypt highlights vast human rights violations, malfunctioning governance and the violation of freedom of religion. President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi maintained zero-tolerance policy towards dissent, introducing repressive legislation that may end independent associations, reinstating a state of emergency and continuing near-absolute impunity for abuses by security forces under the pretext of fighting terrorism. Now let's look at the latest in Egypt and how, despite this negative coverage, the economy is doing quite well. To help us unpack this, we're joined on the line by Ibrahim Dean, who's a senior researcher at the Afro-Middle East Center, and Dr. Shingai Mudizwa-Mangiza from the Political Sciences Department at the University of the Western Cape. Good morning to both of you, and thank you for giving us your time. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Good morning. Good morning to our listeners. Um, Ibrahim, let's start with you. I mean, the report by the Human Rights Watch draws a very grim picture of Egypt. It suggests there's there's absolute impunity in the governance and very little room for one to to argue with the the structures that be. What's your take on the situation in Egypt at the moment? It's not a surprise. Freedoms have been cut down drastically. It started off with cutting down freedoms on Islamists. The, you know, the cut-down of the jailings, the arrests, the torture has now been carried out on liberals, on leftists, on youth organizations. Mm-hmm. The Human Rights Watch talks about two judges who advocated for the prohibition of torture, also being charged and, you know, being put under disciplinary action. So it shows that anything against the media, li- you know, against the government line is actually punishable. And, you know, even within, you know, specifically 2018, mm. uh, because President uh, Sisi wants to uh, run for a third term and change the constitution, even pro-Sisi journalists such as, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, on these on Nile TV and that have actually been, you know, been removed from their programs, if at you know for any, for any sign of dissent mm. towards uh, you know the regime. So there was an island transfer a few years ago. And, and many nationalist journalists who supported CC but didn't support the decision, those ones were moved uh, this year. And so it's it's basically a place where if you, you know, against the line of the government, uh, you are liable for punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Shingai, wh- what's your take? Yes, I, I do agree with um, Dr. Dean. Uh, I think the situation in Egypt has deteriorated, uh, at least as far as human rights are concerned, since 2014. Uh, if you recall, uh, shortly in, after 2014, we had seen the, uh, the deposition of Mohamed Morsi, Egypt's um, first civilian democratically elected president. Um, however, I think what, in trying to make sense uh, of the deteriorating human rights situation, Mm. Um, I think maybe it will be interesting to give just a little bit of context. Um, you will remember, of course, that uh, since 
2011 and the Arab Spring, um, the Middle East, broadly speaking, and uh, largely inclusive of its Western neighbor, Libya, Tunisia, and Syria, uh, had under been had been all been undergoing a period of upheaval, you know, um, as a popular popular uprisings against uh, seemingly, mm-hmm. um, well, not seemingly, but rather undemocratic regimes there. So I think partly the clampdown um, or the and the attenuation of public space, I think, is largely informed by a fear that there may be a repetition of this uh, happening in future, particularly uh, in the context. You know, uh, of an economy that had obviously been um, trying to to stabilize, you know, after you know a period of uh, you know uh, economic downturn. Mm. So I think this clampdown is largely informed by that, and I think also it's um, again, as uh, Dr. Dean had informed, it's also largely part and parcel of the consolidation of power around uh, President uh, Sisi, uh, as he does intend to. Um, seek a third term. Uh, so I think, yes, broadly speaking, you know, I mean, we can actually look at the, you know, the human rights situation, you know, through that through that lens. Mm. And I'm, I'm happy that you're bringing up um, the Hosni Mubarak situation because, I mean, he ruled as a dictator for, for decades and there were litany of complaints against him, police brutality, elections being rigged. Are we able to compare the two leaders um, right now, Dr. Shingai? Um... I think what we can say, although President Fatah al-Sisi has only ruled, you know, for such a short period of time in comparison to Hosni al-Babarak, but what can broadly be said is that, um, you know, there has certainly been, you know, the climate is a lot harsher now, Mm -hmm. I think, in in comparison to that. Um, We know, for instance, that at least according to the Amnesty International report, that, um, you know, since... December 20, since um, 2014, approximately 15,000 uh, civilians have been arrested and tried in military courts. Mm. We know that as recent as December 2017, 111 individuals um, had been detained by the security service for a number of things, ranging from criticism of the president to, you know, um, protests against the deteriorating human rights uh, situation. So when looked at, you know, according to, you know, through the rubric of time, it seems that certainly, uh, you know, things uh, as they stand now are a lot harsher mm-hmm. uh, when, you can, when you compare the, uh, you compare the two regimes. But however, as we said, I mean, it's still, uh, President Sisi has only been in power for, uh, what, nearly five years. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it, it just remains to be seen what happens. I mean, we don't know whether, you know, there'll be a relaxation. Uh, you know of this, uh, you know of this, or, or not? I mean, it's difficult to say. But mm. certainly, from what we can see, um, the, you know, uh, there is certainly a feeling that um, things are, you know, the, the, the public space has deteriorated certainly a lot more now mm. than uh, during Mubarak's regime. Mm. Now, you you also you're highlighting there that there's 15,000 civilians who, who were tried. Um, you know, there's also this large number of people on, on, on who are facing death sentence. I mean, that Human Rights Watch report spoke about 800 people in 2013. And the international, there's been this international outcry. Um, Ibrahim, what, what does this say about the justice system of, of Egypt? 
So, I mean, two things. As Dr. Shingai said, it, it, the situation, even activists, you know, liberal leftist youth activists have said that it's harsher than, you know, during the latter end of the Mubarak era, so, and much harsher. Mm. Uh, in terms of, um, you know, the judiciary, a key cog in Mubarak's uh, rule, his 27-year rule, and I think this is important in the context, was you know, basically his control of the judiciary, especially after the 1990s, uh, you know, in, during the, what, they, what they would call the golden age of the judiciary under the, you know, the Jad Ahmed Mar. Um, but, uh, you know, what's happened is CC has, you know, re so during, between 2011 and 2013, the Mursi regime tried to reform the judiciary. The retirement age, for example, was lowered from 70 to 60 to try and, you know, get rid of some of the old judges that were Mubarak era remnants. Um, um, and, and, you know, following the coup, there was now this con new constitution which gave the judiciary, the only judiciary in the world, the power now to decide its own judges, to decide its own um, chief justice, unlike mm. any other country in the world. So the judiciary is now, you know, has been politicized and is now instrumentalized by the Sisi regime to basically institute these punishments. So we look at whichever judge gets a case. Generally, the ruling is the same. Mm. Uh, that's why there were 800 people, for example, sentenced to death in 20, 2014, 2015. Uh, you know, there's only the court of cassation has actually um, reduced the death sentences and commuted them to life. Uh, but the judiciary itself, you know, has been instrumentalized by the CC regime and is a key cog allowing the regime to, uh, you know, to, to institute, con to, con to remain in control of the country. And, and judges, as we see in the Human Rights Report, judges not taking or not towing this line have actually been sent to disciplinary hearings. Mm, mm. And do, I mean, do we know if human rights uh, groups and associations and activists have access to those who have been sentenced to death or who are behind bars? Do, do we know at, at that, Ibrahim? I think it depends on the, the level of, 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 of prisoner. So, you know, those, with, um, those that have been sentenced sent to military courts, and that's many thousands, Mm. They have no access. Human rights institutions have no access to them. You know, the, the Brotherhood uh, active or Brotherhood political prisoners, there's a bit more limited access. Uh, you know, because uh, you know they do have quite good legal or you know a legal representation. Um, human rights institutions have had more access to your leftist and your liberal. Uh, prisoners, your youth ones, such as Ahmed Duma, Ahmed Mar, uh, mm. Allah Swami. Um, but, you know, in saying so, many of these institutes have been closed. So, you know, the Egyptian Center for Human Rights, mm. um, you know, the, the, the Medium Center for Disappeared People mm. uh, and Victims of Torture, they have been closed in the past two years. Also, you know, the CC regime has instituted an NGO law. Mm. Uh, which severely cracks down and contains the activities and the independence of these institutes. So there's very few independent institutes, you know, no limited or no, no overseas institutes. So, you know, even these human rights institutes are being cracked down on. Mm. Dr. Shingai, you know, it seems almost as if the international community is, you know, turning a blind eye to the human rights violations, the clampdown on anyone who who seeks to, to have their voices uh, heard, do they really have a role to play here? Or is it just, you know, the rule of um, each country is sovereign? Um, it's interesting that you raise that question, Ayanda. I think um, the period within which we are living is a truly interesting period. Um, we have known for a long time that the, particularly since the end of the Cold War, that the international community 
has always taken a very strong line uh, towards human rights violations, particularly so in the aftermath of what we saw in Bosnia in 92, uh, the genocide in Rwanda in 94, and uh, again, the establishment of an international criminal court uh, essentially signaled you know, uh, broadly that, you know, tolerance towards, you know, crimes against humanity and various other um, crimes committed, you know, in, you know, under the guise of sovereignty uh, would no longer be tolerated. Mm. But I think um, more recently, uh, particularly in the last uh, two years, um, one, I say this, you know, following the Brexit uh, situation mm. uh, and also the rise of Donald Trump, we've kind of seen a certain, I don't know if you want to say a fragmentation mm. of the consensus, uh, as it were, um, among the international community. We know, for instance, now that stability, um, particularly following the rise of ISIS, you know, Daesh, um, has become, you know, of paramount concern. Uh, issues concerning, again, uh, Boko Haram, let's say Nigeria, or, you know, whether it was Al-Shabaab in Somalia. So broadly speaking, I think there's been a bit more emphasis on uh, this idea of stability and order within mm. uh, states that are seen as being fragile. And I, I think to that extent, that unfortunately has had uh, a negative, uh, you know, impact in regards to issues concerned with human rights. Uh, we know, particularly as it concerns uh, Egypt, um, that uh, not too long ago there was an Italian uh, citizen, I think, who lost his life under circumstances that uh, yet to be, you know, fully uh, explained. Um, however, it was suspected that he may have died at the hands of security forces. It's not entirely clear, but we know that, for instance, uh, that the, you know, the right-wing administration there uh, in Italy. Uh, did particularly turn a, you know, a blind eye to that. So mm. I think to, to that extent, like I'm saying, you know, there's been a somewhat of a fracture, I think, um, in regards to you know, this, you know, the historical solidarity that we've seen. And I think that has to do largely with the changes in the broader uh, international climate um, you know, uh, and consensus, as I said. Mm. Well, I'd like to pause it right there, Dr. Shingai. Let's go for a quick break and we'll stay on this role of the international community. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people, and we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Channel Africa. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1,000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1,000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1,000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C. on Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. 
Well, welcome back to African Dialogue. We come to you every Monday to Thursday at 1100 hours Central African time. You're also welcome to interact with us via Twitter at Channel Africa, Facebook, or you can simply SMS your views to plus 2779-695-7930. If you want to email us, do so at info at channelafrica.org. Now on the program today, we're looking at the current political situation in Egypt pertaining to negative reports about the clampdown on the media and the suppression of political opponents. What is really going on in, in, in Egypt and you know, is the president turning a blind eye? Now we're joined on the line by Ibrahim Dean, who's a senior researcher at Afro Middle East Center. We're also joined by Dr. Shingai Mutizwa Mangiza from the Political Sciences Department at the University of the Western Cape. Before the break, uh, Dr. Shingai was talking about the role of the international community and that there seems to be more concern or emphasis on stability um, as opposed to really interfering with human rights violations. Now, now, Ibrahim, what can we say about the international stature of Egypt within the AU and the UN? Uh, I think within the AU, it's, 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 it's a lot more powerful, right? Uh, it's one of the big five countries, uh, you know, that contributes around what seventy to seventy-five percent of the of the institution's budget, and you know, this, for example, meant that you know, following the twenty thirteen coup, Egypt was uh, suspended from the African Union. However, it was uh, you know reinstituted less than a year later, even though there had not really been any any real change mainly because of the pressure, because of Egypt's influence, uh, you know, in the region um, and in the institution. Also, when we look at Egypt, uh, you know, we need to look at Egypt's strategic location. Mm. Uh, you know, it's very, very close, for example, to Israel. And so, you know, within, within the international community, Egypt, and uh, especially now that Egypt-Israeli relations are very good, have been very good since 2013, uh, you know, after the coup, the Israelis actually lobbied for the U.S. to weaken its stance on Egypt. Um, you know, that was one of the reasons the U.S. and the EU, uh, and especially the U.S., weakened its provisions and unfroze, uh, you know, the, the aid packages that Obama was considering freezing. Mm-hmm. Um, and also when we, when we talk about Egypt, it's a country with, you know, with 80 million uh, 80 million strong population. It is a very, very strong military, one of the strongest in the region. So it's the most, you know, dominant culturally, militarily, and economically, mm. uh, you know, economic Arab power. And so, you know, these factors mean that, you know, Egypt has an outsized influence uh, in the region, on the continent, um, and in a sense internationally because of its, uh, its uh, you know, the Israeli lobby and its good relations with Israel. Mm. Um, meaning or you know, inhibiting the chances and inhibiting criticism from uh, the U.S. and the EU, uh, you know, when it was there during Obama, and now even less, uh, as Dr. Shigai says, with Trump and, and, um, and you know, after Brexit, where mm. countries are looking at economic imperatives, Egypt has a large economy that can, you know, can provide much benefit for Western companies, and so they've been turning a blind eye. Mm. You know, to these, these uh, sanctions and punishments. Mm. So, but now all of this is happening under the leadership of, of, of the president. What does it say about him? I mean, does it mean he doesn't therefore taint him because of these good relations he enjoys with the UN? I think when we look at uh, uh, Dr. Abdul Fattah, um, or President Abdul Fattah, mm. he's not really, he's, he's, you know, one is the international community hasn't actually been able to or didn't really put pressure at the time they could have put pressure, which was 2013, 2014, 2015. Uh, you know, he survived that. Now, in actual fact, the international community is more supportive of him because people are looking at stability, as Dr. Shingai says. They're looking at, you know, 
people were paranoid about the growth of the Islamic State group. Um, they, you know, they also look at Egypt's um, uh, position next to Israel. And also, I think, in a sense, you know, the president himself is supportive or is actually instituting this crackdown. So it doesn't, it, you know, it hasn't, you know, he's not going to stop it. Mm. And if there's no any condemnation from the international community, which has been, you know, much less in the past year, mm. uh, he's just going to be empowered to carry on. I mean, in, in the recent weeks, he's actually instituted a law on um, uh, what they would call lifetime military or military posts. So, for example, to contain any threat from within the military, he is now able to call upon any general to serve in the military for life. Sorry about that. No threat. Dr. Shingai, what is your take? Because I also want to, you know, ask, um, looking at what's happening politically, are, are we likely to see any formidable political party emerging? Um, I highly doubt that that would be the case, Ayanda. Um, you know, as we had mentioned earlier, one, there's been, you know, this uh, very systematic consolidation of power uh, by the administration of uh, President Sisi. Um, another important thing uh, to note, which you haven't mentioned, is the fact that there's going to be the establishment of a new political and administrative capital uh, mm-hmm. away from Cairo. Uh, this essentially now ins- would insulate the regime uh, from any popular uprisings, as we have seen previously in the in the um, Arab Spring of uh, 2011. And so, I think to that extent, it makes it a lot more difficult uh, for there to, at least in the short to medium term, mm. for there to be any serious uh, opposition uh, challenger to emerge. Um, Again, even if one were to look uh, within the institution, uh, you know, the security cluster itself, we know that uh, a lot of former Mubarak supporters uh, have been purged. And so there's been a lot of uh, realignment, Mm. uh, you know, within the strategic uh, sectors of the armed forces. And so I think to that extent, you know, um, the stability that we're talking about makes it singularly uh, that much more challenging, you know, uh, you know, um, for any uh, viable, um, you know, opposition uh, outfit to emerge. Mm. I mean, if that's the case, is it worth having elections in this country? Well, I think in, what's important to remember, I think, is that um, in as much as we may talk about this idea of, you know, uh, political stability being trumped over, uh, you know, um, you know, issues of human rights, I think it's important to recognize that, I mean, there has to be some certain semblance or veneer of legitimacy, uh, however, you know, narrow that is. And so I think to that extent, even if it's to satisfy, um, you know, external perceptions, you know, uh, I think it's necessary. I think the whole idea is also, I think, pursuant to President Morsi's own um, position, the idea of having elections, uh, I think also, in a sense, would also be seen to strengthen his own positionality. For instance, if one were to imagine, um, as we have seen, you know, the growing influence mm. of the armed forces, mm. uh, you know, since 2014, particularly in regards to other sectors of the economy, I think the idea that, you know, uh, him having a certain amount of autonomy, whether that be through the legitimating agent of elections, 
I think for him, at least strategically, and as, and as far as his long-term interests are concerned, are important. Furthermore, I think there's the notion that should the status quo within the international community change? In other words, should now we return to a scenario whereby we once again are mm-hmm. uh, closely scrutinizing issues of, uh, you know, concerned with human rights, concerns with the constitutional governance, etc. There's this notion that him being a popularly elected leader, that he has an element of legitimacy. And I think to that extent, um, that is the, the strategic value of elections, mm-hmm. I think, in the context of Egypt. Yeah. Um, you know, Ibrahim, there's, there's this history with Egypt also that it's been led by army generals. Um, I mean, is it the choice of the citizens? We know the kind of the caliber of army generals we have in Africa. They're not really known for being democratic. I think one is, I mean, army generals themselves tell you that they're not, you know, not. They in, only in Portugal 1974 has a military coup actually led to a more democratic opening. So it's, you know, even even worldwide army generals, generally the military doesn't go out of the barracks, doesn't go back into the barracks very quickly. I think when we talk about Egypt, um, you know, we need to we need to look at the fact that many of these states, uh, you know, one is Egypt was ruled by, uh, you know, was under the Ottoman Empire previously, and then ruled by a king for, uh, you know, roughly half a century. And so that the military control of Egypt has only been since, you know, the 1950s. Um, but, you know, in saying so, Kamala bin Nasser, for example, was very, very dictatorial, but was very... Uh, um, mm-hmm influential, very popular because he was a nationalist leader and also he you know, took the reins of power in a time when it was the Cold War. Uh, so, um, you know, it, it, was, it was a bit, the context was different compared to now, you know, where we have, um, you know, populations having a taste of democracy, seeking democracy and also being able to in, be influenced by other, other, you know, other cultures, other, because of the spread of technology. So, you know, it, it is, you know, in Egypt, it is, I mean, in every way, it's very difficult uh, for countries to democratize, you know, when a general is in control. Mm-hmm. Um, also, in Egypt's case, specifically, as Dr. Shingai says, the military controls between 25 and 40 percent of the country's economy. So, you know, these uh, also, and, and, you know, the, the, the laws on military courts have been you know, enhanced within the new 2014 constitution. So, it, it's very difficult. It, it's not, you know, it's not likely that Egypt will see any real change until uh, you get, we get a candidate that's not from within the military. Even if the candidate is an institution-supported candidate, you know, from within the business sector, that may be better for Egyptian democracy than you know what what is currently occurring. Mm-hmm. Well, let's hold it there. Let's take our last break and then we can wrap it up. I'd like us to touch a bit on the media freedom and also, you know, on the positive. You know, amidst all this political instability, there is a good story in terms of um, Egypt's economy, which has been doing very well um, after um, taking that loan and undergoing that reform process with the IMF. Let's talk about that after the break. Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, It's an honor to be here. 
Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Welcome back to African Dialogue. Today we are looking at Egypt and what is really happening in Egypt. We're talking about politics, we're talking about media freedom, we're talking about the judicial system. And on the line we're joined by Ibrahim Dean, who's a senior researcher at Afro Middle East Center and also joined by Dr. Shingai Mutizo Mangiza from the Political Sciences Department at the University of the Western Cape. Now, Dr. Shingai, just before I go on to the media freedom um, issue, you know, question just came to my mind that I mean, if the international community we're saying is, is, is more focused on a stable Egypt, could it also mean that they would be afraid to see some Egyptians probably or possibly fleeing into neighboring countries? Yes, I think particularly, I think there is that, uh, there is that notion, particularly mm. when we consider the, you know, the growing concerns over the issues of migration. Uh, out of the continent, particularly within that region. Mm. Um, I think certainly to that extent, Egypt uh, has been seen as more stable in comparison to its other neighbors, such as uh, Libya, for instance, uh, to a lesser extent, Tunisia. But I think to that extent, for them, the and again, as to what um, Dr. Ibrahim had alluded to, is this idea that given Egypt's strategic positioning, uh, within the Middle East. I mean, um, I, I think to that extent, uh, certainly, um, it's, you know, they would really be wary uh, of seeing, you know, further turmoil within that region because we also have to remember that uh, Egypt also shares uh, a border with, uh, with Israel. Mm-hmm. And again, we also know that the, the Palestinian question, which also still has to be resolved, uh, again, you've got uh, on the other side, uh, not too far away, you have the issues, the issues that are happening or the challenges happening with Yemen as well. So I think to that extent, uh, any further, you know, uh, instability, you know, that precipitates any migratory outflows would be of of quite concern, uh, given, you know, um, the fact that Egypt has, you know, a fairly large population of uh, 80 plus million. Mm-hmm. Um, Ibrahim, just to go back on the issue of, of, of media freedom, I mean, the HRW report says that some media houses were placed under the terrorist entities list and subsequently under government-owned newspaper. What kind of environment is the media working under there in Egypt? I mean, Egypt, you know, uh, reporters were, like reporters for human rights, reporters uh, without borders, you know, regularly issues these uh, reports, and Egypt comes on top in terms of journalists being imprisoned. Mm. Um, you know, it, it kind of shows you how, uh, you know, how difficult it is being a journalist trying to navigate the situation within Egypt, especially nowadays. You know, before you could be critical on some issues. For example, you could be in 2016 critical of the islands transfers to Saudi Arabia, but supportive of Sisi. Now, any form of dissent, especially in the past four or five months. Uh, is actually cracked down on um, because CC wants and is seeking and he wants this one narrative especially when he changes the constitution you know uh, which currently has a two-term limit so he can run for a third term so he's looking to silence any opposition you know to speak you know with one voice and also I mean because mainly because you know much of Egypt's population you know um, isn't uh, you know the literacy levels are low 
and so you know he's, he's, he sees the media as being able to you know, influence the population to support him more. So they, he wants one emerging voice, um, and any other voice, any any dissidency is not you know not he's not he's not tolerating uh, even from within the media and even from within supportive media. Um, journalists, reporters, you know, even political opponents are behind bars at the moment. Ibrahim. Yes, I mean, there's, there's, there's not even just Egyptian journalists. There's, uh, you know, roughly between three and five international German journalists that were arrested, that have been arrested and are still behind bars. You know, there's no real political opposition. Uh, you know, no activists. There's no protests being allowed in Egypt. The November 2013 protest law makes it virtually, you know, illegal to, to have sit-ins. Uh, and so it, it's an it's an area where. Uh, one, you know, there's, there's no no room for uh, for opposition, and two, I think, you know, many Egyptians, because of the uh, the you know the events of the past um, five years, are just looking for stability, and so are uh, you know are content with just trying to live, and so you know, in a sense, the laws have stopped protests, but also, you know, the different and the changes brought about by the you know the past six years. They've also meant many are just looking for stability, especially within the older generations of Egyptians. Mm. Um, let's go into some positive news now. Um, you know, the economy seems to be doing well under his leadership. It went through a rigorous reform program. And I mean, just recently, the IMF announced that Egypt's economy has become one of the highest growing economies in the Middle East. It's a bit ironic given the political climate, Dr. Shingai. Yes, um, I think again it, it comes back to you know I guess the, the recurring theme in our in our discussion today, which is this notion of stability. The idea that uh, international markets uh, prefer uh, to you know to participate or to engage in those economies or where there's an element of political stability. So to that extent, whereby you have a situation whereby their property rights, for instance, are secure. Uh, the idea that um, you know this perception of uh, you know action by various civil society entities, perhaps in this case maybe uh, unions, for instance, you know who would probably be making claims for you know greater wages, etc. That to that extent, that once you have this element of stability, whereby you have a state that is able to sort of manage uh, you know you know these um, various uh, competing claims uh, upon it. You know that once there's a conducive environment that this, you know, you know, um, you know, is perfect for them to to invest in. One, two, that it's also uh, able to, you know, uh, it's also a positive ground to allow for economic growth. Um, now, from what we are seeing, is that um, right now, at least according to the World Bank, the statistics, uh, they are saying that the real GDP is expected to grow uh, by five percent. They are also saying that the budget deficit uh, within Egypt is actually also sort of expected to narrow uh, to 9.8 percent of the GDP. You know, so I think all these things, um, you know, are seen uh, in a sense as being um, being positive. And um, just to add on to that, uh, you know, this again, this type or this model uh, of governance, you know, um, has been witnessed before. Uh, if you can, if you can think historically to the cases of uh, Chile, uh, where you had this uh, regime uh, under, you know, this repressive regime under um, Augusto Pinochet, that was seen to be very 
you know, very competent when it came to managing the economy, at least in as far as, you know, uh, keeping budget deficits down, minimizing inflation, and um, that sort of thing, and trying to jumpstart or, you know, uh, put a greater emphasis on exports. You know, this bureaucratic uh, authoritarianist model, uh, so to speak, has been seen, um, you know, in some quarters as being, uh, you know, not entirely at odds, you know, with, um, you know, the demands of growing an economy. So that's possibly what we are witnessing uh, in the interim now in Egypt, um, you know, this idea that it's a regime, you know, putting in place uh, various, you know, policies, particularly when it comes to fiscal policy, uh, trying to encourage discipline. Uh, further, also the idea of the army, um, you know, uh, also having lent in the past a significant amount of money to stabilize the economy. Um, I think these things have kind of allowed, you know, uh, for this situation that we're seeing now. Um, Ibrahim, um, what's your take? And just in addition, going forward, what's the future for Egypt? Are we expected to see any other reforms, especially in the political space? Okay, I mean, economically, as uh, Dr. Shingai has said, it's, uh, you know, the Chile example is the, is the best example. It's very good for the economy, very good for business, very bad for, for actually Egyptians. Mm. You know, subsidies have been removed as per the IMF package. Uh, Egypt, for example, has got between 50 and 60 billion in loans and aid from the Gulf, you know, which props up its economy. Its currency has fallen because of the, you know, the subsidy removal, the, the liberalization. So it, it, it is very good for economic growth, similar to, you know, the example of the Asian Tigers, where we had just lots of growth, but no space for dissent. Um, and, and, and the growth actually didn't benefit the people, but benefited a certain class of, mm. of people, which is generally, in Egypt's case, the military and business elite. Going forward, it doesn't, it doesn't seem as if there will be any political change in the near future. It just seems that the atmosphere is too, uh, you know, the, the containment is too, it's it, 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 it reached a level where there's no space for a position to even form or to even begin forming. And so, you know, it's likely that we'll see going forward, you know, CCRN, for another term mm. and another term and another term, you know, until uh, the military takes decides over. that he's, <laughs> he's becoming too powerful and wants to replace him. I mean, yeah. and you also talk about Mubarak. Mubarak wanted to give power to his son, uh, you know, Gamal. Mm. Uh, and so that meant that the military also supported the ouster because they wanted Umar Suleiman to be present, someone from within the military again. So I think until the military... Uh, you know, CC is not uh, being good for its interests. CC will largely stay in control of the country. Well, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much to both our guests, Ibrahim Dean, Senior Researcher at the Afro Middle East Center, and Dr. Shingai Mutizwa Mangiza from the Political Sciences Department at the University of the Western Cape. Thank you very much for, to both of you for giving us your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay.